Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 21, 1 through 9. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The global pandemic has done a lot of things, including wreaking havoc on the economy. But there's one area of our economy that is doing really, really well. And you know, it may surprise you. Economists call it the prepper economy. Now, I read an article recently. It was entitled, The End of the World Business is Booming. And it describes how there is a growth of emergency preparedness, all the way from storing tons of batteries to an underground bunker. And researchers tell us, get this, that there are 3.7 million preppers in our nation. Now, whether it's the doomsday clock that moves closer and closer, the latest apocalyptic movie we watch, or let's just be transparent, the heightened anxiety of our cultural moment. Isn't it true that all of us at times wonder, and we worry, about the end of the world and where the future is heading? But you know, we are not alone in our end of the world wondering or worrying. In the first century, Jesus' disciples were also there. They found themselves in kind of what we might say is a prepper moment. And they asked Jesus, as they are worried about the apocalyptic ending of the world, they asked Jesus about the end of the world. But what was Jesus' response? It actually may be surprising. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 21. Now, as we enter back into Luke's narrative, let's set the literary context. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's at the magnificent temple that King Herod built. This was one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. It is stunning, but it was also the pride of the Jewish nation. Now, Jesus' disciples, as we have followed in this narrative, have a heightened expectation of Jesus being crowned as the messianic king in the end of the world in Jerusalem. They believe that's going to happen. And as we follow Luke's narrative, we know that Jesus pushes back against that. <laughs> a crown does not await Jesus. A crucifixion awaits him. And Jesus tells them over and over again in different forms that there's going to be a long delay before what the Old Testament prophets had described as the final climactic moment in history, the day of the Lord and the second return of Jesus. Now, Luke begins chapter 21, if you're following along, with this glowing and gnawing contrast of the religious leaders' hypocrisy oppressing the vulnerable, widows, with the true piety of a widow giving generously. And then right on the heels of that, in verse 5, if you're following along, Jesus drops what had to be a massive bombshell on his disciples. He says the most crazy thing 
to his disciples, you see this temple that Herod built? It's going to be reduced to rubble. This was unimaginable to Jesus' disciples. Yet we know from history that in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus actually raised it to the ground. So Jesus' prophetic pronouncement about the temple's destruction clearly sends the disciples on a kind of steroid, a kind of apocalyptic alert. And in verse 7, we read these words. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus' response is fascinating. Not only does Jesus prophetically describe events that soon will take place, that is within a generation when the temple will be destroyed, he also paints a picture of a distant future of history's final climax. Jesus' words form what we call a prophetic pattern helpful for end-of-the-world preppers. And in his prepper sermon, Jesus focuses more, again, hear this carefully, on keeping a proper perspective than storing up provisions. He speaks more about self-sacrifice than self-preservation. Now, exploring Jesus' prepper sermon, I'd like us to see three essential threads, essential realities for end times living. First, be discerning. Secondly, anticipate hardship. And third, stay hopeful. Three essentials for end time living. First, be discerning. Jesus begins his sermon in verse 8 with the strongest warning. Look with me there. And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Now notice, Jesus addresses the first great prepper peril, and that is the snare of spiritual deception. And Jesus makes the strongest and most fervent plea for the need to be discerning. In fact, this is so important to Jesus and to Luke that the grammatical structure of the original language frames this in kind of a urgency of command. Jesus points out that end time deception will focus on two areas, false teachers and false timetables, counterfeit teachers and false timetables about the end of the world. Now, other New Testament writers speak a lot about false teachers, but here I want us to notice the false timetables. The Gospel of Matthew gives us the account of the same prepper sermon. And in Matthew's account, we hear Jesus emphasizing so strongly that nobody knows the time of the end. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verses 36 and 42. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Clearly, Jesus is saying, nobody knows the timetable of the end of history. That is, Jesus' second coming, or we might say the day of the Lord, will take many, many by surprise. And the tragedy is that many throughout history of the church as well as in our time, many religious leaders, pastors, cult figures, prognosticators have distorted the scriptures, particularly biblical prophecy. They have predicted dates. They have written hyped-up bestseller books. They have duped many into believing that somehow Jesus' return, they know, is right around the corner. Another question I'm often asked, right? are we living in the end times? And let me just say yes. For 2,000 years, we've been living in the end times. And we don't know when the end times will end. But we can be confident they were moving closer 
and closer to it, and Jesus' return could happen at any time. So how close are we? We don't know. We know a couple things. Jesus, in other gospel accounts, describes the increasing intensity as we get to the end of the end, and he uses the metaphor of birth pangs in the final closing of the chapter of human history. The Old Testament Daniel paints a picture of the end of the end times with this broad prophetic brushstroke, and he gives two kind of textures. One is, at the end of the end times, there is a massive increase in human knowledge and also human mobility. And that portrait does seem to describe our historical and cultural moment now quite well, doesn't it? But we must keep in mind that God's timetable is very different than ours. And as apprentice of Jesus, the when is never to be our focus, rather the what of faithfulness is to be our focus. And Jesus' point for end time preppers is to be a non-anxious faithful presence, discerning and diligent in our daily lives and apprenticeship. The Apostle Paul will write to the Thessalonians, a whole church who's hyped up about the end of the end times and say, hey, live your life in a quiet way. Do your work well and love others. So notice here in Luke 21 how Luke bookends Jesus' sermon with the same discernment theme. Look with me at verses 34 through 36. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, notice the emphasis on staying awake and being alert. What does that mean? Staying awake means that we have discerning minds, hearts, and bodies immersed in truth. Now, I have often mentioned a great 17th century French philosopher who wrote many outstanding things, including called pensee or fragments, Blaise Pascal. And I think he gives timeless truth and advice for preppers who inevitably will face great challenges of deception and the need for discernment. Here's what Pascal said. He said, truth is so obscure nowadays and lies so well established that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. Now, this is profoundly relevant for our time because with the explosion of the information age, the internet and social media, isn't it true that Pascal's words speak profoundly to our moment and to our church family? Liz and I recently watched the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I highly recommend it. And it exposes the manipulative yeah, and addictive and echo chamber technological design built into much of our information diet today. And social media, of course. So growing in discernment as an apprentice of Jesus and as a faith community in our time is going to require much more technological discernment and discipline and wisdom in the days ahead. Preppers must be people who know and love the living word Jesus, first and foremost and know the written word of the Holy Scriptures really well. Because we all know the best way to discern counterfeits, even subtle counterfeits, is to know the real thing so well the counterfeits become obvious. So Jesus says in his prepper sermon, the first essential for preppers, followers of Jesus in the end times living, is to be discerning. Secondly, the second essential is to anticipate hardship. In fact, that's the focus of his sermon. Verses 9 to 26, if you follow along, Jesus unveils, yeah, it's kind of a sobering portrait, isn't it? Of hardship that the disciples should expect. He points out things like national conflicts, wars, natural disasters, persecution, and particularly he emphasized persecution for our faith, our faith in Jesus. 
And this will come, he says, not only from governmental and religious authorities, but also, look at this, friends and family members. Hmm. We must not miss that Jesus calls his end-time followers not to militancy against their persecutors or those who oppose them, but rather to prayerful watchfulness. Not the self-preservation, but the self-sacrifice. In fact, in verse 19, Jesus encourages disciples. Again, he says he's with them, but he encourages them, prepare for hardship, endure great hardship, and yes, great loss. Now, isn't it true that loss is not easy for any of us? But loss does reveal what we lean on and where our true security lies. Think back with me for a moment, just a moment, in your life when you've experienced a great loss. Maybe it's a broken relationship, the loss of good health, the death of a loved one, a shattered dream, a financial setback. What was that loss? And as painful as that loss was, and I don't want to diminish that in any way, what did it reveal about you and where you're really leaning on in life? What did that loss say to you about where you're placing your ultimate trust, where you are finding your ultimate security? Now, we all love our country deeply. And we recognize the many who shed their blood for our freedom. And we're grateful for those freedoms we have. But let me ask you, what if they were taken away from us? How would we respond? And what would that reveal about us? Because it is true that never before in the history of the global church have more followers of Jesus been persecuted, tortured, imprisoned, and martyred for their faith than today. But let's talk a little bit closer to home. Our loyalty to Jesus, our fidelity to scriptural teaching, and biblical ethics means more overt censorship or various forms of opposition, even hostility, are increasingly plausible. Greater hardship and loss may be a reality for us as followers of Jesus in our own nation in the days ahead. Now, I pray it's not true, and I hope it doesn't happen, but it may. Now, Luke Gunrich is an attorney with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. He's written a very important book. It's called Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. And I commend it to you. Luke Goodrich points out for the first time in American history, common Christian beliefs are increasingly viewed as incompatible with the prevailing culture. And Luke makes the case that religious groups need to be prepared for lawsuits claiming that their religious standards or convictions of conduct are discriminatory. And Luke Goodrich captures, I think, Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 21. But it's not a calling to cultural warrioring. Not at all. Jesus calls us to faithful suffering. Luke puts it this way. In sum, Scripture calls us to radically reorient our thinking about suffering and persecution. And then he says this. We are called not to win, but to be like Christ. So how can we be a non-anxious, faithful presence in these times? Now, I want to suggest for your reflection, I encourage you to write this down and think about it this week. Four considerations for faithful presence living in our time. First, read the word and read the world. We are to be people of the book. The psalmist tells us we are to meditate on it day and night. Paul reminds us that the word of Christ must richly dwell within us. And of course, we not only read the words of Scripture, the words read us, and the Holy Spirit transforms our minds and hearts. We are to read the book. But we're also to read the world. 
And reading the world around us means all of us need to cultivate cultural intelligence. And with that intelligence as followers of Jesus, we seek to wisely navigate our peculiar times with grace and truth. Jesus captures us, I think, the importance of cultural intelligence. He instructs his disciples to be what? Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So as we read the word and read the world, we can be true salt and light, faithfully present, a non-anxious, faithful presence in our workplaces, our vocational callings, and in, yes, our engagement in the public square. We need to read the word and read the world. Secondly, we need to stay together and stick together. Recently, Liz and I watched a great documentary. It uh, kind of gave me chills. It's the life of Alex Hanold, who uh, scaled Yosemite's, I just can't imagine, 3,000 foot El Capitan without a rope. And Alex free soloing is what it's called, El Capitan, is one of the most courageous feats of human history, at least modern history. And with this feat, as you watch it, it is jaw dropping. But when it comes to our apprenticeship with Jesus, free soloing is most perilous. And it's one of Satan's greatest strategies in seeking to render the church ineffective. When it comes to kingdom living, let me just say this very clearly. There is no free soloing. Our God has provided supernatural empowerment through the spirit, through the local church community, and given us life-giving relational ropes and emotional ground support for us to climb any mountain, to face any circumstance, any persecution or opposition so that we can flourish and finish well. The New Testament writer of Hebrews calls end-time disciples I love it, to stay together and stick together. In Hebrews 10, 22-25, we read, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see, notice the day, right, the final day, drawing near. Now, I want you to notice the three let us's. I call it a great let us diet for end time preppers. Let us draw near to Jesus. Let us hold fast to truth. And let us encourage others to love and good deed. In other words, the Hebrew writer urges us, draw near to Jesus, hold fast to truth, and stick together like glue. Sticking together, even when we may see things differently, is vital. Now, let's remember, inside Jesus' inner circle of disciples, his inner circle, Matthew, the tax collector, is on one side. John, the zealot, is on the other side. They represent, in the first century, the most polarized political differences imaginable. Matthew had spent his entire life aligned with Rome. And John spent his entire life, up to this point, to overthrow Rome. Can you imagine the conversations around the campfire at night? Yet the political differences were transcended by a much higher loyalty to Jesus and to his kingdom and to their love for each other. So when it comes to our spiritual formation, faithfulness, fruitfulness, disciple-making mission, drawing close to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in our local church community is absolutely essential. The evil one rejoices in his demented hatred when he is successful at fueling divisions, suspicions, mistrust among the local church family. I have to say, my greatest fear right now is not as much about our nation as concerning as it is 
it is much more my fear about the church. The division in the church. The third consideration is to love those who agree and disagree. The Holy Scriptures remind us, right, that we are all broken. We all look through a mirror dimly. We are unimaginably loved, but not all of us see clearly or even rightly. We don't. And discernment and truth-seeking is not just an individual pursuit. It is an enterprise of an entire faith community. We need each other to know well and to be known well. Loving others who see things pretty much like we do is not easy in itself. But what about loving our neighbors, work colleagues, church members, classmates, family members who see the world often differently than we do and may even disagree with us on many things? We live in a very polarized cultural moment. And while we must not minimize the very real and substantive world view and ethical differences in our culture, they are very real. We are not to demonize those who disagree or oppose us. Jesus said it so clearly. In his teaching on the good news of the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us to love and pray for those who oppose us. I want you to think about someone who strongly disagrees with you. Who comes to your mind? Maybe it's about very important and substantive matters that you care deeply about. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a boss, a fellow employee, a government official, someone very hard for you to love. Jesus calls you and me not to revile them, not to demonize them, but to pray for them. Is that the posture of your heart? Is that the tone of your conversation with others and on social media? The fourth consideration I think is really important in our time is to expect both opposition and openness. Gospel living and gospel boldness will bring both opposition and openness. The Apostle Peter sets a proper tone for our gospel witness. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read Peter's wise and inspired words. Listen carefully. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, right? He's writing in the context of persecution for faith. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, like that proper word, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. Yet, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. Peter is saying, preppers tell others about Jesus. They are bold, yet gentle, reasoned, yet respectful in their witness. And let's remember Paul's hopeful words in Romans 1 that the gospel is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In our cultural moment, Many of the props people have been depending on have been shattered and are gone. Many, many are feeling disoriented, lonely, fearful, hopeless, and joyless. And in that context, many are asking some big questions. And they're spiritually open and curious to engage in respectful conversation and empathic listening. So let's be ready and eager to tell them about Jesus. Let's share our story. Let's give a testimony by our lives and our words regarding the hope that's within us in this cultural moment, but doing it with gentleness and reverence. Three essentials for end-time living. First, be discerning. Secondly, anticipate hardship. And lastly, stay hopeful. As Jesus comes to the end of the sermon, I love how he strikes a hopeful tone, don't you? Even though the temple in Jerusalem is going to be raised to the ground in just a couple decades, and difficult times are ahead where the very powers of heaven will be shaken. Jesus promises he will one day return in power and glory and his kingdom will be ushered in fully. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, 
because redemption is drawing nigh or near. See, not only does Jesus offer his disciples this bedrock promise for us to count on, he also reassures them of his continual presence with them. The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' last words before his ascension into heaven to his disciples. What does he say? I am with you always, even to the end of time. See, Jesus is faithfully present to us. That's how we can be a faithful presence to the world. And we can have confidence that Jesus wins in the end and that he will be with us to the end. Now, I know it's easy to be discouraged in our time. It's easy to be anxious and fearful with all that's going on in our nation and our world. I get that. In Transplanter, there are times I feel that too. But we can stay hopeful in our sovereign God's bedrock promises, his tender, caring, and manifest presence in our lives. We are called to be a non-anxious, faithful presence, buoyant with hope, overflowing with joy. Sticking close together, may we be a people with wise discernment. May we anticipate hardship, yet stay hopeful. Jesus said, I will build my church, and hell itself will not prevail against it. Jesus, the King of Kings, has come, and he will come again. In these end times, in this time between, may each of us be found faithful. And our prayer is, may his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.